I'm Agnes Kurtzels. I'm Whitney Winter. And my name is Claire Horning. You're listening to the Ag Knowledge Podcast. Welcome back to the Ag Knowledge Podcast. Today, we will be talking about corn ethanol. And along with that, it kind of goes with the corn board. So we'll probably be talking about that for a little bit. And just Nebraska's ethanol industry. So I think Claire was going to get us started off today. All right. So I am on NebraskaCornBoard.gov. Just to give some background info, the webpage that I'm on is called, it's called Corn 101. This is that most of the corn that we produce in Nebraska stays in Nebraska, which is pretty cool beans. And then it stays through ethanol, livestock, and other processing. So 31% of Nebraska corn usage from 2017 through 2018, 31% of the corn went towards um, producing ethanol which is a pretty significant amount. It's the biggest segment on the graph that I'm looking at. So a big part of where corn goes. Um, So a little bit about Nebraska's ethanol industry. Nebraska's first ethanol plant was in 1985, and there's now more than 24 ethanol plants in Nebraska. The plants have capacity of more than 2.0 billion gallons, and that makes Nebraska the second largest ethanol-producing state in the country. This is also from NebraskaCorn.gov. These plants use more than 700 million bushels of corn per year and produce nearly 6 million tons of distiller grains, a high-protein feed ingredient comprised of the parts of corn kernels not used in ethanol production. So we can see how people are using the uh, byproducts of corn ethanol and we're using it to feed cattle which is really nice because it allows multi-use of um something Mm -hmm. i know the nebraska corn board considers like their golden triangle corn ethanol and livestock use so that would explain that phenomenon well and it makes it so corn is more sustainable Mm -hmm. and it makes it in general like corn ethanol more um sustainable And here also, besides sustainability, um, I'm on the same page that you are, I think, Agnes. So it's talking about basically job growth and just community economic benefits. So it says um, a typical 100 million gallon ethanol plant adds 50 jobs in a community and it purchases about 37 million bushels of corn from the local farmers. And then that turns into distiller grains. And then it also generates a lot of tax revenue as well. Yeah, I've driven by some ethanol plants. I think there's one near Plainview, and they're, like, relatively big, you know, um, which they kind of have to be in order to store not only the fuel, but also the corn and the distillers, and then also have room for all those trucks, the elevators, the trains that are coming and going. So mm-hmm. it makes sense that it would be producing a lot of jobs. A lot of times when you think of, like, where we're using ethanol, the first thing that pops into my head is like getting gas at the gas station. So I just have a fun little anecdotal story for you. Um, So I stopped in Pilger to get gas on my way back one time. And it was the first time I had been to that gas station. And so they have like the regular two that are normally there. And then they also had E15 and E85. And it was the first time that I had seen that because it's like the blue pump instead of the regular color to kind of mark that off. Mm -hmm. So when I got back, I called my dad and I was like, Dad, I saw the coolest thing. I saw like, it was like the more ethanol ones, E15, E85. He's like, please tell me you did not put that in your car. (laughs) And I was like, 
I know I'm dumb, but I'm not that dumb. Like, I know I can't put it in my car. <laughs> he was like, oh, good. Oh, I thought you scared me there, too. <laughs> I almost gave my dad a heart attack, but I thought it was cool because <laughs> it was the first one that I had seen. So Nowadays, with, like, the flex fuel vehicles, I know I have a 2015 truck, and so it is a flex fuel vehicle. A lot of people can put, you know, your normal whatever fuel you usually use but then you can put your E85 into it. Well, especially if your car's not built for it. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I think you read an article that said it's E15 can be, or E10 um, or something it can be It says, used. so now I'm on um, the EIA, which is the U.S. Energy Information Administration. So I'm just on a webpage about different ethanol and fuels. Well, all models of vehicles in sold in the United States can use E10. Currently, only light-duty vehicles with a model model year 2001 or newer can use gasoline blends higher than E10 unless they are a flex fuel. Um, mine's, mine's like a 2005, but it's not a flex fuel. Yeah, mine's a 2004, and it's definitely not a flex fuel, but I can still use, you know, E15 mm-hmm. at the pump. I'm on National Corn Growers Association, and it says nearly every gallon of gasoline in the U.S. contains a minimum of 10% ethanol derived from corn. Um, Renewable fuels such as corn ethanol are an immediate climate action solution or climate change solution, and it's a low-carbon, clean energy source and an affordable homegrown fuel. Ethanol serves as a critical pathway for agriculture in rural America to contribute to the sustainable future. Mm -hmm. Because um, pure ethanol is non-toxic and biodegradable, which gasoline is neither of those two things. Just to do a little bit of the difference of like what is E10, E15. Um, this is from the Nebraska Corn Board again. E10 is a blend of 10% American ethanol and is most widely available to vehicles and gas stations. And it can be put in any standard vehicle, you know, lawnmowers, boats, motorcycles, and you know, your regular vehicle. So it's 10% ethanol, 90% gasoline is how it's blended. Yeah. Um, E15, it's just 15%. It's approved for smaller standard vehicle models, 2001 or newer, like Claire said. And then there's E85. E85 is 85% ethanol. It's a minimum of 70% and is approved for use of flex fuel vehicles only. And they are typically ye- have a yellow hose or a yellow nozzle. Mm-hmm. And gas stations, like, the pumps are marked pretty clearly, which is which, and it'll also have, like, a little use this in your vehicle if blah, blah, blah. Like, it won't just be, like, take your guess at it. Yeah. It'll tell you specifically yeah. what's you what you can use and, like, how to use it, kind of. Well, in most flex vehicles that I've seen have, like, a sticker on their mm-hmm. tailgate or yeah. it's even in, like, the, the Manual, gas cap yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it's in the whatever gas cap. Called. And then also, like, on my vehicle, it's on the window. So it's, like, a little manufacturer sticker. That's on, I think, the driver's side window. So, like, you can see it when you go up to a vehicle. But I don't know if that's, like, removable or not. But I would assume people wouldn't remove that. I mean, it's a nice reminder. Yeah. To be like, hey, it's okay to use this. Um, I have an article from Ag Week. And it talks about Minnesota and their grant to encourage gas stations to use higher ethanol blends, such as the E85. The Agriculture Growth Research and Innovation Biofuel Infrastructure Grant Program through the Minnesota Department of Agriculture is 
awarding $6.6 million to help pay for pumps, fuel storage tanks, and other equipment certified as compatible with blends of motor fuel containing at least 25% ethanol. So this is really good news for Minnesota. I mean, E85 is generally cheaper, right? Yeah, it's. I've noticed a trend of like possibly like a good 30 cents difference between your what a normal vehicle would take, like an E10. So especially if you know you... Um, have a flex fuel it f- fuel vehicle wow a flex fuel vehicle you have a you can save some money by mm-hmm. switching to e85 or even e15 is usually a little bit cheaper and it's also better for the environment because it burns cleaner like you guys said so i kind of want to explain a little bit how that works um so i'm on the eia side again producing and burning ethanol results in emissions of carbon dioxide However, combustion of ethanol made from biomass like corn is considered atmospheric carbon neutral because as it grows, it absorbs CO2. So basically, growing corn, so like plants absorb CO2. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's carbon neutral to burn ethanol because you're just burning what the corn has absorbed basically. So that's what makes it a difference between gasoline is that producing corn eliminates what CO2 you've put into the atmosphere. Okay. Uh, I think it's really good, especially like right now where we saw like a huge influx in corn in storage and stuff. This gives an opportunity. I mean, by using more ethanol, you're having to create more ethanol or corn ethanol. And it's going to let corn prices go up, even though they are currently up. But it would allow uh, farmers to make a bigger profit on their corn. Unfortunately, that would also mean more people would be raising corn, so prices would probably, you know, even out pretty quickly. But you got people who have corn in storage for over a year now, and it's a good way to good way to use it. So we talked about um, like fuel and stuff. I think Whitney has an article about some other products that use ethanol. So Cargill, uh, you guys might know its common name around Nebraska. So they actually have a ninety six percent pharmaceutical agriculture ethanol which is it's an original product which is highly purified is produced by fermenting sugars uh, using yeast and then the sugars are derived mainly from molasses and grain and so they do a ferment fermentation process where the ethanol is purified by multiple distill and rectification processes so Cargill is using this for the pharmaceutical industry to manufacture products such as anesthetics, um, antiseptics, drugs, lotions, um, and like other things like cosmetics. So your fragrances and deodorants, shampoo, etc. And so according to the Cargill site, uh, their pharmaceutical agriculture alcohol complies with like current versions of European pharmacopoeia. And then it also complies with like your general food laws. It's also a bonus is free of al- allergenic components such as like gluten and gluten re- residue, which I've seen. I've I know like five or so people just in w- Wayne State that are either intolerant to gluten or have like a slight allergy to gluten. So this is this is something that would be beneficial to those people or even just people who are trying to cut some gluten out of their, you know, diets because of whatever reason. Maybe it's health, maybe it's preference. Uh, and then it's also not tested on animals, which is a huge thing nowadays. It's cruelty-free. Mm-hmm. 
But going back to some of like the distiller grain, which is the leftover from mm-hmm. after they extract the ethanol. It's like the byproduct. The basically. byproduct. So according to Nebraska Corn or the Corn Board, conventional ethanol is produced from a starch within the kernel that is in field corn. So they're not using popcorn, sweet mm-hmm. corn or anything. They're using field corn. Some people also call it dent corn. The protein and fiber that remains is a high quality animal feed called distiller grains. So you'll see often where these ethanol plants pop up, if you will, Mm -hmm. a lot more feedlots will pop up or even um, swine barns, uh, chicken farms, because you're able to purchase local grain. Mm -hmm. In fact, nearly 40% of the nutritional value of corn used in ethanol production is retained. It's returned to the feed sector in the form of distiller grains and corn oil. Corn oil is, you know, either sold on the market or cattle producers will also buy that and mix it with like their silage and their feed mixes that they use. And then that feed is fed to animals to produce your meat, eggs, and dairy products. And uh, I think it's really cool that we're able to use these byproducts in an effective way that helps other places in the food chain. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of cow-calf operations use a lot of those byproducts because of the extra nutrition that they can put into their diet. And it's often cheaper because it's more local and it's also, you know, it's corn. It's a a versatile product. It's a versatile product, but it's also not uncommon, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, we're the corn husker. It's not rare. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if you guys mentioned this earlier, but Nebraska is one of the top producers. I was just going to say, I think Whitney has another article about (laughs) different states that produce ethanol. So go ahead. (laughs) So I am looking at Statistica, which is a site that does a lot of analytics and... Statistics? (laughs) Well, uh, (laughs) yes. (laughs) But according to this study, they did... Poet biorefining in South Dakota produces the most ethanol by capacity. So that is, um, this is in million gallons per annum. It means per year. Okay, so in millions of gallons per year, per year <laughs> this South Dakota plant produces 2,740. So 2,740,000 gallons. And then right behind them is Texas and then Illinois and Nebraska is actually fourth, which is our Green Plains plants, which I know there's one close to here. I'm not sure where it is. Is it Columbus? Green Plains? It says, oh, it's out in Ord. Green Plains is in Ord. It says Archer Daniels Midland is in Columbus. Okay. From the map there's one that in I'm looking at. Central City, York. Plainview, Norfolk. Omaha. Mead. I think I was thinking of the York one. But since we're number four... We are still producing 958, which is in million gallons per year, which is still quite a bit, not as much as some of the larger states that have the extra area to build more ethanol plants. But we are up there in the top five. And then there, according to this study, there's also 33 plants in the Midwest. So all of the states in this study, the top ones that were producers, came from the Midwest. 
Cool. So. And then also along with that, um, most of E85 usage does also occur in the U.S. Like okay. you're going to find it at fueling stations and it's going to be the most used, which kind of lines up with the it's produced here. So we used it here kind of theme that we've been seeing mm-hmm. throughout mm-hmm. these different websites and stuff. So I just think that's interesting that it's retained in the area and it's we're using it in the med- Midwest, which is the same way, we're, which is the same place we're producing it. <laughs> I'm on Fueled by Nebraska, and it goes a little bit more into depth about um, it being safer for the environment, your family, and also your wallet, if you will. For being safer for your family, not only is it safer for the atmosphere, but ethanol doesn't contain tain? Gasanol can, wow. Gasoline contains a combination of benzene, toluene, and xylene, uh, also known as BTX, but it is added into gasoline and it can cause problems to people's health. So it's a cancer-causing toxin and ethanol is more natural and has a safer octane booster because it's natural. It doesn't have to be added. But octane is a measurement that describes how much compression fuel can withstand inside your engine before it ignites. The higher the number is you see on the pump, the more pressure that fuel can handle. That was a weird worded sentence. Yeah. But so E85 can handle a lot more pressure than just plain gasoline is what you're right. saying. And like you see all these warnings on the gas pump, like don't light a cigarette, don't be on your phone, don't open and close car doors because it can create static electricity and Mm -hmm. stuff. And with ethanol, it creates a safer environment. So although you still shouldn't be doing those things, it's less likely. It is crazy to me how people just like ignore that stuff. I saw someone fueling their truck with it on and I'm like, please do not. If it's if it was a diesel truck, you can. But if it's like if it runs on gasoline, you you can't because I know we own a diesel truck and we can keep it on while fueling and it's safe this still makes me uncomfortable but i mean okay so i work at the fire stand right there's a big old sign out front that says don't smoke within 50 feet of the building because the building is full of explosives two feet away out the door and somebody smoking a cigarette it's like first of all can you not read the big old yellow and red sign that's very (laughs) eye-catching right next to you second of all wouldn't you just know that like people are walking by you with fire like even a spark Mm -hmm. or something the whole town's going up dude (laughs) go out with a bang literally more than one (laughs) but it's just like use your brain use your eyes to read (laughs) yeah seriously well even that's just not something i want to mess around with especially with gasoline or something because also like it's not just you that's gonna blow up it's everyone else with you you know what i mean like it's like it's one thing if you know that's your problem but if you're gonna literally blow up an entire gas station or (laughs) town maybe we should reconsider smoking until we're like down the road or something like yeah. it's not that serious i know there's some people have that have like been pumping and they'll get back in their vehicle and they won't realize that they're still pumping and they'll drive off oh yeah like the, or it'll stop pumping but they mm-hmm. forget to put it back mm-hmm. i had an ag teacher do that oh, oh my gosh yeah but she I mean- drove away and like you could feel it pop out and like the oh yeah the, um nozzle just went flying backwards i'm like but i think this is great i think it does that like it has that safety measure Mm -hmm. to pop out for that reason yeah right but it was it was still like i would be so embarrassed (laughs) 
she she was. I just I don't know how you can miss it sometimes, yeah. especially if you pay at the pump. Mm-hmm. So all you have to do is watch it See, and then I, put the pump back. I never I never just let it sit and get back in my car. Like I will stand there and wait for it. Well, and it wasn't because I'm, I'm like, why would I go sit in my car for two minutes when I could just stand here? Yeah, and people and watch sure, for two no. minutes. <laughs> well, make sure it's still running and everything. This mm-hmm. was when this was at like a small gas station in Laurel, so it like it's not big at all. But you could pay after you pumped. So like she got done pumping, but she didn't put the it back, and then she went inside to pay, and then when she came back out, she just went around the vehicle and got in the driver's side. Mm. And none of us, like, looked because usually that's not something you forget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially if you're walking back Like, past. you would have thought she would have put it back and then went to go. Right. And, like, now most pumps are, like, prepay unless, mm-hmm. you know, you're at your small gas station or something. Mm-hmm. Even then, I, I, I don't know. Like, maybe if you're really, really thinking about something else. But at the same time, that's like an automatic thing. Like once you hear it click, okay. Well, like, see, that <laughs> almost reminds me of like leaving your kid in the back of the car. Oh, you yeah. You would think you would just remember that. <laughs> there was a campaign that was like, well, put your phone in the back seat so that you remember your kid. And I'm like, hold on. Yeah. You didn't hear that no. one? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, your phone's more important than the kid. Yeah. The campaign did not go well, surprisingly. It was not well thought out. (laughs) Just, like, put your phone in the back because you'll remember that over your child. But it's sad because I can think of, like, a few people off the top of my head that if they were parents, that would actually work because they pay attention to their phone a lot. It's like if it wasn't in their (laughs) hand, they would lose their mind. See, secondary benefit of that would be you wouldn't text and drive. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Which is especially dangerous with kids in your car. Fair. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. So but. this is a little bit unrelated, but still kind of funny. So I was, um, I'm nannying over the summer. So I had the kids in the car and I had, I had my phone like on the console and it was like giving me directions. So it was just like on Google and you can say like, Hey Google, do this. Hey Google, call 911. <laughs> I was like, no, Shh, we can't say that. And I was like, thank goodness it did not work. But I was like, do not do that. I'm not going to get pulled over because you're being ornery in the backseat right now. You are lucky it did not go through. <laughs> but back on the topic of like being safe around gasoline and ethanol, we cover that as extremely flammable because it's it has vapors and everything. But some people, they need to be told not to ingest it because I was looking at a safety data sheet on ethanol and it said, and I quote... Suspected of causing blood cancer if repeated over exposure by inhalation and or skin contact, blah, 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 blah. Continue. May be fatal if swallowed or enters airways. Do not siphon gasoline by mouth. Okay, listen. I know I I was like making fun of you because we like before the podcast, she read that and I was making fun of her because I'm like, wow, who knew? We put warning labels on bags to not put it on people's heads. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, fair. Okay, fair to put put that on gas. Gotta put it on that before somebody sues you for not having it on that. True. But yeah, a lot of the other stuff, there was a couple other symptoms that Whitney had mentioned and it just Mm -hmm. sounded like carbon monoxide poisoning because it's just, that's all it is. It's just like a chemical like 
element thing, you know, dangerous, not safe. It'll have like the little OSHA diamonds that say like the red and you know, the different danger mm-hmm. levels. The pictograms and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had to take that. So when I worked at Orchlands, I had to do like the OSHA whatever training it was just like on the computer and i was like this is so wild (laughs) well i i had to take a farm hazard course at northeast and that was one of the sections well i know a lot of people don't think about when they're filling up like a portable gas tank to put it on the ground so that it's grounded when they're pumping like people will put it in like the back of their vehicles because it's just there instead of putting it on the ground and And filling it up up. see i was thinking like i wasn't thinking like the back of a car i was thinking like you're holding it while you do it and i was like wouldn't that get so heavy and hard to hold and it would be sloshing around (laughs) no that's that's what i was thinking when you said that and i was like who would ever do that But now, now I'm with you. Now I'm with you. I'm on the same page now. And then we're like putting them in containers that aren't. Yeah. People were like filling grocery bags. We're putting with it in the gas? back of it. We're like filling up those yeah. big, uh, what are they called? Tubs. Mm-hmm. They were just putting it. It didn't end well for them, surprisingly. They did. They put. They would put in like a 50 gallon barrel that was not created to hold. A nice, yeah, a yeah. nice metal. And I'm just like, first of all. Let me just put it in my glass jar. <laughs> big old glass container. I'm gonna put it in a glass jar and you know where I'm gonna set it in right out sun. in the sun. <laughs> well on that topic some people also don't do like the aftercare of when they're done uh emptying like a portable gas can that people have it screwed on really tight and then it would be in the sun and so then it would expand and then it would explode and so you know maybe reading up on how, how to, to store handle that stuff and store and care yeah just any just, gas just, thought. just any gas any dangerous thing that you're working with see if here's the thing if it has the little osha diamond on it i don't know if it's the, the warning label that is what i call it i call it the osha diamond <laughs> and it has a blue spot and it has a yellow spot and it has a red spot and if those numbers are high and if there's a little skull on it or a little like exploding <laughs> gas tank <laughs> I would double check what that means because <laughs> I can't remember. But I know if the numbers are high, that's bad. And I know if the picture seems scary, that's also bad. <laughs> yeah, so ethanol has um, the red, which is usually on top. It's flammability. And then the yellow is one for ethanol, which is reactivity. And then the blue, which is off to the left, is a two and it's health. And then there's like the white diamond on the bottom, so that's like a specific hazard. That's for there's the also that's for the picture um, of that white space. Yeah. There's also the gas containers like that you buy at the store. Like there's red for gas, yellow for diesel, diesel. or green for diesel. So I've seen. Um, and then there's one for kerosene. Blue. I think, I think blue is kerosene. Is blue. blue. Yeah. Just read all the labels before you buy and handle stuff. You know. You have eyes. Use them. Mm-hmm. I just got new glasses, and let me tell you. I'm loving it because I can actually see again, and my life is so much better already. I tend to take full advantage of my eyesight now. So I think that's all we have on the topic of ethanol, but Claire and Whitney are letting me rant, if you will, about ag-gag laws and what they are, why they could be considered important, and maybe some downsides to it, but mostly why they are beneficial to the agriculture community. 
But this is going to be my hot take of the evening, I guess. So if you don't know what ag-gag laws are, um, this article is from Arizona State Law Journal, and it kind of gives a little bit of a description of what the Iowa's first ag-gag law was, so I'm going to use that as kind of a reference. Ag-gag laws criminalize obtaining access or employment at an agriculture operation through misrepresentation, basically criminal, excuse me, criminalizes deceptively obtaining employment at an agriculture facility with the intent to cause injury. So um, one example would be someone going undercover, taking videos or pictures, recordings, anything like that, and then being able to release that to the public or to news journals, uh, websites, stuff like that. Ag-gag laws were made to prevent quote-unquote whistleblowers that go uh, undercover into ag businesses, facilities, most generally. They're more common, I should say, in like dairy farms, even cow-calf operations, although not nearly as popular as dairy farms. So what first brought ag-gag laws to my attention was there was a huge story that broke about someone went undercover, went to a dairy farm, and videoed and recorded audio, did a lot of stuff to show how these calves were being treated. Although it was one person in a video of someone I think if they were just dragging a calf, which is not ideal, but as a calf, they're pretty um, resilient. They're pretty, like, calves are pretty resilient, especially if you're just moving them a little bit. But this video, like, blew up, They and it was released to, like, magazines. It was put on hundreds of websites, and just a lot of people started... Um, making claims against this dairy farm. And unfortunately, the dairy farm, you know, had a lot of backlash about this. And it was just one worker. And obviously, it probably wasn't just a one one and done kind of deal. It was probably an ongoing situation that the owners weren't aware of. And so out of this whole ordeal, ag-gag laws were mentioned. But that's kind of how I first had heard about ag-gag laws. For a little bit more context, I guess, behind ag-gag laws. In 1992, Congress had passed the Animal Enterprise Protection Act, and it criminalized the physical disruption to the functioning of an animal enterprise. They passed this law because by the end of the 20th century, there was a lot of criticism in the industrial agriculture focused on animal welfare. There was a bunch of people that were for the protection of animals because during these times, a lot of animals were being tested on. There weren't many laws that protected animals from abuse and stuff. And like PETA and the Animal Legal Defense Fund were founded in the 70s, like late 70s, early 80s, and began releasing undercover videos and several um, photos from prominent research laboratories as well as farms and stuff. So during the 80s and 90s, a lot of these animal liberation movements were releasing animals from farms and laboratories, and then they were also, you know, committing arson and property destruction on these facilities, businesses, and everything like that. And so the FBI began viewing such organizations as a serious domestic terror threat. And I'm getting this from the Arizona State Law Journal again, but this, uh, 
act that was passed in 1992, the Animal Enterprise Protection Act, or AETA, was revised in 2006, but it did resolve little of the concerns that people brought up against it. The goal was to protect agriculture facilities and laboratories from domestic terrorism, but people also wanted to be able to protect these animals that were in inhumane inhumane conditions. So the new statute um, expanded protections for businesses, broadly criminalizing any interference with animal enterprises, causing more than $10,000 in damages. Although AETA did not directly intend to criminalize whistleblowing, the 90s saw a rise of explicit attempts to stifle undercover investigations. One of these cases was the Fourth Circuit decision in Food Lion Inc. versus Capital Cities ABC Inc. So around the same time as this lawsuit was going on, um, the nation's first wave of ag gag laws were adopted in Kansas, Montana, and North Dakota. Kansas had passed the Farm, Animal, and Field Crop and Research Facility Protection Act in 1990, which criminalized entering an animal facility to take pictures by photograph, video camera, or by any other means, which would have the intent to damage an animal enterprise. However, the Kansas law protected property destruction, and trespassing at animal facilities, but it was not solely meant to stifle undercover filming. Many states, including Iowa, had similar agriculture protection laws with harsher punishments for criminal acts against uh, when committed against agriculture. The second wave of ag-gag legislation began in 2012, but it was targeting the undercover investigations. By 2017, 11 states had adopted some form of ag-gag statute, and many more states' uh, legislatures were considering it. Iowa had led the way in 2012, and then Utah had followed. But all of this new legislation that was being passed would help defamation lawsuits and stuff against these activists. But why I think they're important is that a lot of things can be taken out of context especially on a farm and especially in a dairy farm. Um, You're having cows, you know, give birth and they go through a cleaning process, much like a human will if they have a child. So they'll, you know, bleed for several weeks later and there's going to be blood. If you are an activist trying to get something shut down or trying to get a lot of attention against a business, you're creating an environment that will help create that hostility because they're able to record this blood with no context given. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, if you don't have the context and you don't have the background information to understand the situation, like, if you don't know that cows bleed after they give birth, like, of course you're going to think it's horrible, especially if you don't know that that cow has just given birth. You're just going to be like, oh my gosh, these people have bleeding cows. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's they just put it on there and are like, man, this, this is horrible. And it's not like, no, that's not what's going on here. Yeah. And then you also have, like, videos of people shearing sheep. That was another really big one that I saw, that this sheep is bleeding. And it's like, first of all, they're giving it a haircut. It's literally a requirement for domesticated sheep. They can't shed their fur or their wool. And if they get too much wool, they will die from either heat or from the weight, Mm -hmm. literally crushing them. And sheep don't understand that you're trying to help them. They're going to wiggle around. That's why you'll see when, in most cases, if they're shearing a sheep, they'll put it on its back or on its rump, and then they'll push on certain points. Those are pressure points, and it prevents the sheep from wiggling around too much, and it helps it so that they're not nicking the sheep. Mm -hmm. 
Also, sheep have something called uh, lanolin on their skin and in their wool, and that helps it helps heal cuts and stuff. It would basically be like you putting triple biotic um, on a cut on your hand. So, I mean, obviously, some serious nicks can happen. I've accidentally made a goat bleed because I was trimming their hooves, which is like cutting their toenails or but, I mean, whatever. When I took my dog to the groomer, they made a nick on her paw, and they're like, "Oh, we're so sorry. She was moving." Like, I understand that. It's okay. It'll heal. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's not the end of the world. She got a little tiny cut on her paw. She'll survive. She seems perfectly fine right now. <laughs> yeah. And, like, obviously, there is there is abuse that's happening in these situations. Yeah. You hire someone that you was new and you had no knowledge of their background or whatever, and they abuse the animals. And sometimes that's either from ignorance or it's because they are purposefully doing it. A lot of people think that these ag gag laws are bad because, well, it's preventing the truth from being told. And it's like, well, by by releasing these images or these videos, you're also not allowing the truth to come out. Because again, I could go to my farm and I could probably stage a photo and make it look completely awful. But that's that's not how we run our farm. And a lot of dairy farms, a lot of people don't understand what's going on behind the scenes. Dairy cattle are not maternal at all. Worst, worst mothers out there. They don't really care about their calf after 24 hours. And a lot of times they're better off having the calf off of them, especially the calves. Probably a lot better off not being stomped on by a huge cow. (laughs) And yeah, that looks awful having to take a calf away from a cow, but that cow is gonna kill the calf because it doesn't know what to do. Wouldn't it be easier or better to take away a calf? And they're still being fed milk. They're still being fed dairy milk. They're still getting colostrum. That cow is not being milked right away. If it's being milked, the milk is being given to the calf because colostrum is not... It is digestible by humans, but it's not necessarily the best consumption (laughs) for humans. (laughs) If you're going to use the ag-gag law and say that it's a negative thing because the truth can't come out, I I wish you would look further into what these businesses run off of but again the truth not coming out if you're staging photos and taking them out of context that's not providing any truth to the situation right that's spreading more misinformation and like you said a lot of this just goes back to ignorance if you don't know how these processes work then you're not going to have the information to be like oh that's wrong that doesn't seem right you're going to take the information that's given to you as it is because you're not going to have the means to question it which is why i think especially us three are really passionate about ag education Mm -hmm. because it's such an important thing especially for situations like this and with you know social media and youtube and all that stuff it's really easy to just say something and people take it right and that can have such a negative impact on you know the ag industry rural communities just like our living situation as a whole because there's a lot more people in urban areas who don't necessarily understand or have the resources to have any kind of ag literacy exactly yeah and i mean that's why i chose ag communications after i went to northeast because i was planning to get my animal science and then go work at a feedlot or something and be done with my school education and i saw that was i think that was when really the large um that dairy farm story came out and i was just like it's awful because it's like you know like calves get dragged around every once in a while not because you want to hurt them but because they're a cow 
It's like dragging a toddler through a store. That's exactly what I'm saying. Like, I've seen kids being dragged on the floor. If they don't move and they're too heavy to pick up, I'm going to grab them. Like, I'm not going to rip their arm out and drag them. But, you know, I'm going to grab under their shoulders and be like, okay, let's get get moving, girl. (laughs) And I will agree. There are situations where I... I don't enjoy, like, I don't necessarily agree with hog confinement, but at the same time, I can understand why they're run the way they are. I can understand um, guilt crates and stuff, because if you have a, you know, 500-pound sow laying down on all of her piglets, well, what what's the loss here? 14 piglets, mm-hmm. or, you know, you have them in a crate that prevents them from laying down on the piglets or next to a corner pinning them okay that's an awful situation for five or not five weeks sorry that's a bit long but for several weeks yeah that's i can't i can't say i necessarily agree with it but it's better than the alternative and especially if you see these open lot pens for sows where they have i don't know probably 10 sows together i don't know if y'all ever met a sow (laughs) especially an angry one They'll just fight until they kill each other. So I can also understand why those aren't an option for a lot of hog producers either. And they're not exactly, like, super docile or, like, trainable. Like, they're big. Yeah. And they're just going to do what they want to do. They know they're bigger than you. (laughs) Exactly. Like, Like, I mean, you can train them to a certain point, but, like, at the end of the day, they're still an animal and they still outweigh you. By a lot. (laughs) And again, like, I don't, that doesn't mean I agree with it, but there's always improvement. Like, if you're, if you think there's no room for improvement, then you're probably lying to yourself. Even on feedlots and stuff, there's always room for improvement. But a lot of people don't have resources right away. Like, it's going to take them five years to better something. But these ag gag laws are making it so that these people, animal activists, you know, PETA, whoever, it's just making it so that they can't try and spread a f- false narrative. Because obviously, if you see abuse, report that to somebody. Report that to your manager. If it's your manager, report it to whoever's in charge. Don't let it just slide by, but also don't let these animal activists continue to spread the negative that they're trying to, just to try and get people on their side. Because I don't know if, have you seen some of their like campaigns, like PETA? They, ah, there was one I saw that it was a fake lamb and it was sheared and then they had like covered it in blood. And I'm like, like yeah. it was a stuffed animal or yeah. whatever, but it was to signify like stop shearing sheep. And it's like, that's animal abuse. Girl, I shear sheep so it don't die. <laughs> <laughs> that's the animal abuse. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's people out there that are careless. doing it too fast, being careless about it. But that's not the majority. Mm-hmm. We even share our llamas and alpacas each year, and it's usually in May because that's when it starts getting warm in Nebraska. Yeah. And they can't, you know, they're not like dogs and shed. They're, they're fiber, so, you know, it's kind of like a sheep. You have to shear them but yeah. I mean, once a year. Like, I shaved my legs and I cut myself on accident. <laughs> yeah. And I'm fine. I survive. You know what I mean? It's like. And you're not wiggling thing. around. Exactly. And I'm trying my hardest, and I'm being super careful, and it still happens. (laughs) Yeah, it's not like with a 500-pound animal, you know, wiggling around. They don't don't know. And, you know, either you might be going too late in the day, your shears are hot, you know, just extra stress that you put them. Well, and it's a loud sound. Yeah. I mean, 
It's like being afraid of the vacuum cleaner because it's loud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same thing. It's loud. It's scary. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I'm going to react badly to it. It only happens once every several months or whatever. Yeah. Hopefully you're not vacuuming that little. But <laughs> <laughs> for shearing, you're not doing it every month. Yeah. We, unless you're showing. Yeah. But otherwise, I mean, you're not. These animals aren't used to that sound. It's the same thing. We have a skid loader. The goats have seen it before. We get it out almost every other week. And they still act terrified of it. A car will be driving down down the road and sometimes they just want to start running. Like, (laughs) they don't care. They want to have fun. And a loud noise is a big enough excuse. You know? I don't know. Animals will be animals at the end of the day. And people don't always remember that. Well, yeah, people try to... What's it called? It's not personification, is it? I don't know. They try and like treat them like babies, um, or just try and make them have human characteristics. Being like they can, they have the same inte- or not intelligence, but no, I I know what you're talking about. But again, yeah, personification, the personification, personification. Oh, sorry, we both were wrong <laughs> how to pronounce that. But, but I, like I I knew what you're talking about, but my confused. I'm giving Agnes my <laughs> confusion and shock horror face because that's. Not how it works. That that would be like me in a story talking about how a tree is so kind to give me its fruit. That ain't how trees work. Like, yeah. That tree is never going to hug me back if I go hug it. You know what I mean? Like, that's just not, that just, it, it, it's not plausible. Yeah. Well, and with mm-hmm. animals, you you know, you, you can have those connections. I have those connections with my animals. But at the end of the day, it's still an animal. It's still going to be an animal. Yeah. No matter what I do. It's like. When cats, like, when you die and they eat you, <laughs> like, yeah, you love that cat. Yeah, he liked you, too. But you, you're fair you, game, you bro. Know. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Sorry, that was kind day. of a gross example, yeah. but it's what I thought Listen, of. I like hamburger a little too much to not not butcher a cow, you know? Yeah. Like, I like, I like a good steak. Yeah, I might not eat my own cattle if I were to have, you know, some. But I would still sell them with the inten- with the knowledge that they are going to become somebody's mm-hmm. dinner. Yeah, and, and and that's just part of raising those animals for that purpose. And I know I've said this before on the podcast, probably several times already, seeing that we're going into season three. <laughs> but we used to have a calf operation, bottle calves, and so we would name them. They would be very friendly, but we would sell them with the intent that they would someday be butchered. And, you know, someone's supper. And, like, we, funny thing is we named one supper. We named them out we, of I- irony, you We know? had some pigs, and we called them bacon, ham, and yeah. sausage, I think. And then we had some that they were just pig. Yeah. That's all they were called. Because we, I, I, we didn't have the intention of keeping them. We didn't have the intention of keeping them as pets because they're pigs. Yeah. And they will outweigh me. All right? At the end of the day, they're livestock, and we know with the intent, with raising them, they're going to either be processed into something or even reproduced. And then, you know, later on down the line, they might go to a feedlot and be butchered out or fed out, I mean. Yeah. Back to, like, these images and these farms being, um, these images being misconstrued to lead a wrong narrative. It all just is, like, I... I can understand their perspective, right? I don't necessarily hate vegans, right? That's your choice. You have that choice. And it's nice that you have that choice. I think we talked about this last 
season where it's good to have all these choices where people get to choose what they want to eat. But don't come at me saying that what I'm doing is wrong because you don't understand it. That's also when they're like, well, veganism and vegetarianism is more sustainable. Is it? Because you're still tearing out those trees to get more land. You're still killing deer, rabbit, everything else because Mm -hmm. it's eating the vegetables. You're using more water to produce those plants that you're eating. And we've gotten more sustainable farming. We've, I mean, if you look at corn, we are producing more corn per acre than we have in the past 50 years. But at the same time, you're not necessarily animal friendly if you're still killing animals to produce what you're eating. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there's like a bunch of uh, TikTokers as well that I saw that like have talked about this ag gag law. Um, one of them was Iowa dairy farmer, and he explains too on that like images can be very very easily misconstrued because like I mentioned, if you took a picture of a cow's cleanings, it was like this cow's bleeding and they're doing nothing. Like what? What are you gonna do if it's you know what I mean? Like put a diaper on it? I, like. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but like that's the thing, though. It's like I'll go get him a pad real quick. Hold on, like, well, but like, but that's the thing too. Is a farmer doesn't want their cow to be sick or because pain or in pain because that's losing production, that's losing a Mm -hmm. product, and also therefore losing money. Also, it's just hard to watch when things are sick and hurt. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you don't want to go out there with an animal you have a relationship with and be like, you're hurting a lot. And I'm just going to be like, oh, whatever. Like, that's... Right. And, like, these dairy farms... If you've ever met a dairy farmer, they can at least name half of their cattle. You know? Like, they're like, old Bessie's coming in the barn next. You know? Like, they know all their cattle. Why would you want that animal to be in pain? And even if it's purely for profit, they're only farming for profit. If a sick animal is down, that's vet bills, that's... Time. Time, that's energy that they don't have Mm -hmm. to make a profit. Mm Mm-hmm. It's easier to keep an animal well than to make an animal sick and then have to do, pay for the repercussions yeah. of that. But when you were looking up some of these ag-gag articles and information on it, you mentioned that about the first couple pages were all unreliable sources and yeah. kind of propaganda. Yeah, and talk about that so, bit. like, I, I literally just typed in ag-gag law. That's all I did. And... I wanted to, you know, try and find some sources just like to talk about just it. Just on Google, right? You yeah. Just, like, typed it into the search engine. Mm-hmm. And, like, the first two pages, or at least page and a half, are just of unreliable resources or resources ran by animal activists that have no necessarily perception on agriculture or that are side of agriculture. biased. <laughs> and are clearly biased. And, you know, some of these are... You know, I I haven't looked into them, obviously, but some of them are like, okay, I can like I can get behind that reasoning or I can I can understand that. But then you look at the source and it's like, okay, this is the same. This is literally copied and pasted off of another article. And like uh, this one's from ASPCA. Well, ASPCA isn't necessarily a bad organization. I wouldn't have an issue reading this, but if they're only telling one side, then what's the point of the article? Because mm-hmm. again, I can see where it's it's bad because if there is a farm that has serious problems going on and it has all of their employees sign a non-disclosure or something like that, that's awful. And that person should be able to 
release information, you know? But it's also, there's more good than bad out there. So when you see these constant videos of someone going undercover, I'm not saying that it's all the time, but there's quite a few PETA members out there that have intentionally harmed animals in a video to make a farmer look bad. It wouldn't be the first time. It's not, there's never going to be a last time. When you don't have that context behind it, any video will look awful. An article on Reuters that talks about it actually being like the law being dismissed in Kansas because it was declared unconstitutional. So in a lot of states that are declaring this uh, legislation unconstitutional is due to people feeling that it affects their freedom of speech. So, for example, um, in April of 2020, the federal courts in Idaho, Iowa, Utah, Wyoming, and Kansas held that ag-gag laws were unconstitutional and similar challenges are currently being considered in other states. While videotaping and photographing are generally recognized as legally protected speech, recording prohibits and recording prohibitions and misrepresentation provisions are subject and to different forms of First Amendment analysis. This part focuses solely on the misrepresentation and some courts, like in the in the case of the United States versus Alvarez, the Supreme Supreme Court invalidated the Federal Stolen Valor Act, which introduces the ag-gag decision in Utah and Idaho. And then in 2014, the Animal Legal Defense Fund challenged the Idaho's ag-gag law in, in 2014 under three main um, statutes, I guess. Um, one is not employed by an agriculture production facility and enters an agriculture production facility by force, threat, misrepresentation, or trespass, obtain, or B, obtains records of an agriculture production facility by force, threat, misrepresentation, or tra- trespassing, or C, obtains employment with an agriculture production facility by force, threat, or misrepresentation with the intent to cause economic or other injury to the facility's operations, livestock, crop, owners, personnel, etc., etc. So Idaho argued that the law was tailored um, because it only criminalized speech accompanied with the conduct, but the law did not target a legally, a legally obtained like misrepresentation to obtain access to the farm could be harmless. But the any harm to agriculture would come from publication of the undercover investigation rather than the mis- misrepresentation itself. Those sections were declared unconstitutional in the Ninth Circuit because it said the court added that Section A was not actually necessary to protect the state's interests because trespass laws already exist to protect property rights. On the other side, the B and C were both upheld because obtaining business records through misrepresentation inflects a legal harm and directly interferes with ownership of the business property. But um, a lot of like other states have had their legislation overturned for similar similar rulings. They find that one section does inflict on a person's First Amendment speech, so it will either strike out that section or completely overhaul on that ag-gag law. So, um, talking about, like, I guess, theories. So, there's um, a communication theory. It's called cultivation theory. So, it 
says that like long-term exposure to media kind of shapes how people see the world so like if you watch like a lot of like crime documentaries you're gonna think there's more crime in the world yeah so that Mm kind of goes along with what you're saying like if that's all you see is the negative 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 you're gonna think that thing is negative right that's why so many people think you know new york is so dangerous is because in every movie there's what uh someone stealing purse or something on the street Mm -hmm. and it's like okay but if you see that all the time, then it's like, oh, New York is such a dangerous place. Yeah. And media, because I'm a journalism major, I know that a lot of news is catered towards bad because it makes that shock. Yeah, the shock the value shock is factor, there. Yeah. No one wants to hear about sunshine and rainbows every day. Yep. That's the whole reason why, you know, there is a good news segment on mm-hmm. whatever morning show. But then it goes right back into there was a mugging. Mm-hmm. There was a shooting somewhere there all was that hard news yeah there, yep. here's some more politics overseas or whatever mm-hmm. but yeah especially with agriculture there's not enough people out there willing to listen to that side um because they think that they're only in it for profit yeah but i mean it's not even willingness to listen i think it's also access yeah even when you were searching it that's yeah. not what came up right and you're gonna i mean if you're not really super interested in it and you're just doing a basic search, you're going to look at what comes up first. Right. Well, And, and if you yeah. really have to dig, then that's going to affect how much access you have to something. That's why media literacy is so important, too. And especially when we don't have access to agriculture literacy in schools, people are either learning about it on Facebook, which not everything on Facebook is true either, or they're looking on Google like I am, and when you see that the first... You know, four or five sources are relatively like news work looking websites, and you have no knowledge of like what this website is about or anything like that. Then you're gonna you're gonna read it and you're gonna consume that, believing that it's true or all of it is true. I'm not saying that all of these articles are wrong, <laughs> because that would be wrong on my part. But obviously, with any article, it's or most articles anymore are going to try and sway you one way or the other and it's the way people phrase facts or present them to you that's going to make you believe something well anyway i think that's going to wrap up this week's podcast thanks for listening tune in next week on thursday at three for more acknowledge bye Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Ag Knowledge. This podcast was created by Agnes Kurtzels, Claire Horning, and Whitney Winter as part of Radio Production Workshop at Wayne State College. Listen to KWSC 91.9 The Cat on the TuneIn app. Previous episodes can be found on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. New episodes are released on Fridays to these and other platforms. Music is Surf Day by Marcos H. Blanos, found on freemusicarchives.org. The song was edited for the use of this podcast.